I'm Sangram Vajre. And I'm Brian Brown, co-authors of Move, the four-question go-to-market framework. Helping you confidently take your organization's next move. We're about halfway through our first season of the Move podcast. Hope you're enjoying it. Click the subscribe. Make sure you give reviews and share with your friends. We have given you behind-the-scenes content from my co-author, Brian, and I about our journey in developing the Move framework. We are clearly proud of this framework, and we truly believe in it. So why in the world would I invite someone who said this? I love Sangram, but I hate this book. Yeah. Onto this podcast. Well, it's because I want to be a little more like him. Christopher Lockhead is a good friend of mine. He's a nine-time best-selling author, a three-time Silicon Valley CMO, and an advisor and VC partner to numerous successful SaaS companies. Chris is also, which is what I love about him, is an incredibly honest person. So, and that's why what I love about him is he will tell me exactly what he feels about the book. And that's what he said. He said, I love you, but I hate this book because he believes in something different. And that's the point here, folks. The point is not everybody has to fall in love with this framework just because we said it. You have to try it for yourself. It's the reason he has been so successful in his career and the reason so many companies turn to him as an advisor. Chris shared his true thoughts on the Move framework with me while we were developing the book. As a matter of fact, Move actually is what he gave the name to the book, so I'm excited that he's in with us. And now, in this episode, you will get a snippet of our conversation on why he disagrees with the framework and why he's such a champion of category creation. The first time I shared the concept of, hey, here are the three Ps, problem market fit, product market fit, and then platform market fit. You literally stopped me there and you said what? Do you remember that? I don't, but I can imagine. (laughs) Yeah, you're like, I hate this. This I love you and I hate this. Yeah. Why? So let's look at the words, right? What was the first word? Problem market fit, product market fit, and platform market fit. So let's start with the most popular well-known one, product market fit. So if you take a big step back, I believe that thinking about thinking is the most important kind of thinking, point A. Point B, what most people call thinking is the regurgitation of somebody else's thought that they thought sounded good to them. Yeah. And unfortunately, a lot of people don't stop and think. So with that said, let's just look at the words, product market fit. Mm. Everything about that phrase is fucking stupid. So here's why. why. Yeah, I want to hear it all. It tricks entrepreneurs into thinking that their job is to fit their product into a market. And a lot of entrepreneurs do that. Matter of fact, that's what the vast majority of entrepreneurs do. And every legendary entrepreneur, innovator, creator in history has not done that. So if you want to ensure failure... Strive for fitting your product into a market. We all know Zoom is the category king in cloud conferencing. There's a competitor of Zooms called Weebly. They've got legendary product market fit, and they are on a rapid pathway to bankruptcy because they are playing a comparison game with Zoom. Mm. They're currently running a campaign 
that has a photo of the New York Times and says, the New York Times says, Werby is better meetings than Zoom. They're still talking about Zoom in their own marketing. Right. So they will fail completely. And so anybody who's trying to fit into an existing market, by definition, is playing by somebody else's rules. Yeah. And based on our primary research that we published in HBR, analyzing every venture-backed tech startup from 2000 to 2015, what we discovered is one company in category after category after category earns on average 76% of the total value created as measured by market cap and valuation. So what we know in the tech space is in each space, in each category, one company takes two thirds of the economics. Werby will never catch Zoom ever. And their product fits really well into the market, market designed by Zoom. So would you say like, how would any other company would come into a market? Because for example, let's just take Zoom as an example. They are the category leader. They have done everything. They've built a category. They're legendary in your words, right? How does anybody else come into it? Like what would they have to do to actually, or what would you say to where be? What should they do that will change them into making a different category? They have category to redesign the category. They have to design a new category. If they choose to compete, which is what they've chosen to do, mm. they are going to ensure all of their customers will be orphaned, their employees won't have anywhere to work, and their investors are going to lose all their money. Wow. Three different ways that I've learned in the whole research of the book of how companies go to go to market, right? One is sales-led, right? Like a lot of companies would say, you know what? Founder, CEO, sales-led. The second I've learned about is product-led. I hear that a lot, and there are examples of it. And then I hear you talk about category-leading companies. Like, if you want to work for somebody, you want to work for category-leading companies. What's your perspective on that? How should people think about these four different areas? So first of all, they're all important. You got to have legendary products. I think sales, particularly in the B2B space, but in general, is probably the hardest job in the company. And in some ways, marketing is sales at scale. Mm -hmm. And I think in the tech space... Getting somebody to pay you a lot of money, millions of dollars, for a bunch of zeros and ones in the cloud, wherever <laughs> the fuck that is, is an insanely hard thing to do. It's critical. And you got to get it right. However, the most legendary products in the world can't speak for themselves. If you go to sell and you're competing against a company that's designing a category, all you're going to do is get those prospects to buy from that category designer. Mm. So as a category designer, I love that people think that you can build a successful company as a, quote, product-led company. I love that people think that you can build a company as a, quote, sales-led company. Because as a category designer, legendary category designers, even I'll take a mediocre category designer over a legendary product-led company all day, every day, because they'll kick their ass. Because category is the only single point of failure. Category designers start with the problem. What's the problem? People in the tech industry talk all the time. Well, let's talk about our solution. We want to talk about our solution. We want to talk about our solution. Well, hello. People don't need a fucking solution unless they have a problem, right? Let's talk about a company that has gone through more of the phases. Like you've worked with so many companies. I mean, which another company you want to talk about that you guys have seen and taken them through the category design, category leadership, and the whole model, and actually have seen an exit or have seen valuation that big? 
I mean, how far back do you want to go? Yeah. I can give you 50 examples. We'll talk about Qualtrics. Maybe that's one. So uh, Qualtrics is really impressive. So here's a company mm. who is competing in a category that most people call surveys or something like that, right? Some kind of customer feedback, customer survey type space. And they say, no, that's really not it. That's like a small feature of this bigger thing that we do. Yeah. And so they come up with a vision and therefore a category around experience, experience management. And as a result, they create a whole new category about measuring and monitoring and delivering legendary experiences. And they change the game with that and they go public. And ultimately, as they're getting ready to go public, they get acquired by SAP. Because what most people don't understand is if you're a growth company, what investors pay for is category potential. Mm. Because smart investors know that one company takes two thirds of the economics. And so what drives investments, or in this case is acquisitions, is the fact that A, investors, or in this case SAP, believes that the experience space is going to be a massive new category. B, that in this example, Qualtrics has what it takes to what we call prosecute the magic triangle, which is get product, company, and category design right, and therefore earn two-thirds of the economics. So on the eve of going public, SAP comes forward and says, we want to buy you. The company continues to grow massively within SAP. SAP decides to change their strategy and roll the company back out and take them. So they go public officially now for the second time, and they stand alone. All of the competitors that they had, which there were many of, are now eating dust. And so now I don't know what their market cap is today. Do you know, Sangram? No idea. It's crazy. And they're clearly the category queen. And they're the company that designed the space, changed the language, changed the agenda, had a different, and I use that word on purpose, and provocative point of view. And when they got enough people in the market to believe in their point of view, that it wasn't about surveys, it was about delivering this incredible experience, bam. Why do so many people struggle with that? Why don't people think like that's the way to go? Because it sounds logical. It makes sense. In life is all about like, if I understand the problem better, I can find a solution. Why do people fall in love with the product so much that they forget the problem? So I think it's human nature. Look, I'm an entrepreneur too. If you ask me about any of my products, I want to tell you about them all day long for 24 hours. Exactly. So you want to talk about category pirates? I'll tell you all about it. You you want to talk about my podcast? I'll tell you all about it. And so I understand that. Yeah. However, products are about us. Brands are about us. Categories are about customers. Categories are about customer problems. Categories are about opportunities to do something in a new and different way that will produce exponential value for customers. And so it's not natural. That's the first thing. The second thing is thinking about thinking is the most important kind of thinking. When we say marketing, we say go to market. There is an undeclared, undiscussed, unexamined context about what we mean by that. So marketing in general equals We're going to launch a product and or company service, whatever, into an existing market. And because we're better than they are, we're going to explain why we're better than they are. Mm -hmm. And when the world gets that we're better, we'll compete effectively and we will win. Yeah. And that's what we've been fucking taught. 
That's what marketing is. Read any business strategy book. It's about competing. It's about comparing. It's about fighting for market share. Yeah, it's about pricing and positioning against somebody else as opposed to positioning yourself. Even when we say positioning, to your point. Werby is positioned against. Yeah, I mean, oh my God. We have to talk about your competitor in your ad. That actually tells a lot about you. Well, and listen, some of the smartest executives in history have done this for decades. Pepsi is the stupidest marketing company maybe ever Mm. because they've been running the Pepsi challenge forever. Four to five people prefer the taste of Pepsi over Coke. What are you thinking about? Yeah. The aha here, Sangram, is that Almost everything we've been taught about marketing and business strategy is completely fucking wrong. It's not what Steve Jobs did. It's not what Sarah Blakely did. It's not what Henry Ford did. And if you stop and look at any legendary creator or innovator or entrepreneur that you and I admire in any domain, why do we admire them? Because they broke and took new ground. Because they were unique. They were original. They were different. And yet we compete. And so it's highly counterintuitive for most people to say, I'm going to raise a shit ton of venture capital. I'm going to put my heart and soul into building a company and a product. And I'm going to do what Niraj and Michael did, which is launch into a zero billion dollar market where there is absolutely zero demand. That seems insane. And yet that's why we know Sarah Blakely's name. And that's why we know Steve Jobs' name. And still, the investors are investing in these companies that are trying to compete. Now, that boggles my mind because obviously the VCs understand the economics of it, that they take the two-third of the... The The smart VCs do. Here's what most people don't know about VCs. The average venture capitalist in the tech industry will never make enough returns in the fund to pay for their salary. So most VCs don't get it. Now, the elite ones do. That's why they try to get early. That's why my friend Mike Maples at Floodgate says that we're your first believers. We invest before anyone else believes. Mm. You know, he was a seed rounder, Series A in Twitter. Twitter was a dumb idea. They were a seed or Series A investor in Lyft. Lyft's a dumb idea. Mm. Airbnb, dumb idea. Until it wasn't. We talked about a product led, but they don't bring customer success early enough in order to actually make sure that their customers are successful. We had a quick conversation before you walked in. You was like, where is customer success? What's your, what's your view on customer success, where it's going and how companies are thinking about it? So as a customer, I want to have a great customer service experience. And, you know, we had John Rossman on my podcast, the author of the Amazon Way legendary book. And one of the things he was sharing with me was how much Jeff Bezos for a very long time now has been obsessed mm. with returns. And this is a great example of counterintuitive thinking. His mission was to make it as easy as possible from the very beginning to return product. If you look at most companies, it's fucking hard to return shit. They purposely make it hard because yeah. they don't want you to return it. Whereas Amazon, if you've ever returned a product on Amazon, it's really easy, a couple yeah. of clicks and they give you the thing and, da, 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 and away yeah. it goes. And the other genius of Amazon, John was the guy that led the creation of what they call the marketplace business. So in the beginning, of course, Amazon's selling books mm-hmm. and they moved to CDs and other things, but they're selling things that they inventory, mm-hmm. right? And then they bring in all these other vendors and create a quote marketplace. The genius of Amazon was to wrap the Amazon experience around all those third-party vendors. 
So Amazon took responsibility for the fact that if you buy some niche product from some vendor that we've never heard of and you don't like it and you want to return it, they facilitate the return and the vendor has to play by Amazon's rules and treat the customer the way Amazon says customers need to be treated or they get kicked off the platform. So my point is legendary companies do focus on getting customer service right. And an untold part of how Amazon became a category king is their legendary returns. That said, as important as it is, and it is, it makes very little difference in determining who the category queen or king is. Because most companies today have complete shit. Most digital startups have complete shit customer service. They don't want to have it, actually. They'd right. rather not have it. It's impossible to call anybody. Yeah. So you're now dealing with email and good luck. Yeah. To make fun of this, by the way, that if you want to email us, you got to email blackhole at lockhead.com because we all know when you go to the Wix website and you're trying to email them to get help on, in my case, how to move domain from them to someone else. Yeah. Good fucking luck. Yeah, they don't want you to do it. So right. like, I'm not going to tell you. So they're not even going to respond and yeah. they're going to treat you like shit. And before you know it, you got to find their CEO on LinkedIn and start sending them threatening <laughs> LinkedIn's to get them to finally fucking do something. Right. Did um, you do it? Yeah, they finally did. <laughs> okay. Because it turns out when you threaten to expose them online yeah. for their terrible treatment of you, they wake up a little bit. As a customer, as a user, as a consumer, does that piss me off? Yeah. And it doesn't stop companies from being successful. So we talked about problem market fit. Every company needs to figure out and get the focus. So it feels like we're online on that. Well, hold on. But on the problem, not necessarily the market fit. Well, when we say problem market fit, what do we mean? Do we mean existing market? Do we mean problem that people currently understand? In my interpretation of that is that you figure out what the problem really exists and then figure out, are there people who this problem actually can solve for? Like not getting to the product at all, but does the yes. problem exist? And are there people willing to buy, willing to pay money in order to solve that problem? Is that painful enough? Correct. However, they need to be educated on the problem. Yes. So there's no market to fit the problem in either. Here's a great example. There's a company called Gojo Industries that nobody's ever heard of. They're one of the most important companies on the planet today. Gojo. Gojo Industries. They're a privately held company in the Midwest of the United States. I think they're on their second or third generation of family leadership. Started by a husband and wife team. And they are the creators of liquid soap. Prior to Gojo, there was what we now refer to as bar soap or yeah. hand soap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this husband and wife team, I believe it was the wife, was working in a factory setting. And bar soap is disgusting when you're yeah. sharing it amongst a bunch of people, particularly a bunch of sweaty dudes with <laughs> nasty hands. So she says, this is disgusting. There's got to be a better way. Mm. Like every legendary entrepreneur, yeah. this aggression will not stand, man. Yeah. And so they get busy and they create liquid soap and therefore the liquid soap category. Mm -hmm. And they dominate it today. Walk into any airport or any restaurant and just look at the dispenser and you will likely see a Gojo Industries logo. Wow. Now that happens, my memory's right, around World War II. The company, unlike most companies, stays focused on the problem. And they're constantly thinking about this problem of how do I clean my hands? Mm -hmm. And one day they ask themselves a provocative question to reframe the problem. The current paradigm around problem and solution is soap and water. They ask a new question called, how do I wash my hands in the absence of water? And they invent a new category called hand sanitizer. And they launch 
the category designing and dominating product and brand in that category, which is called Purell. At the time, in the early 90s, when they launched Purell, nobody is walking around going, fucking A, are my hands sanitized? There is no parent walking around bathing their baby in hand sanitizer. That wasn't a thing in the 90s. So Gojo had to educate the world Mm. about how disgusting our hands are. And therefore, it wasn't sufficient that we just wash our hands a couple times a day. We must sanitize. Sanitize. Yeah. And so here's my point. The problem called how do I wash my hands in the absence of soap was a zero billion dollar market. There was no market to fit it in. And it wasn't a problem that fit in a market because if you walked up to 10 out of 10 people on the street and said, hey, is it a problem for you that you can't sanitize your hands right now? They'd be like, I don't even know what the fuck you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. And now... Yeah, it's a big problem. It's a big problem. Yeah. And of course, COVID changed the whole game on that. And so my point is legendary entrepreneurs are category designers. They are in the future. They move the world from the way it is today to the way they want it to be. And in that sense, they're visitors from the future coming back to the present saying, hey, man, there's this thing we're not paying attention to that if we did would create exponential value, would produce an exponential result. Mm. And they educate the world about the problem via this thing called the point of view. And when they do, billions and billions and sometimes trillions of new value gets created. Well, is there such a thing, Christopher, of like category of one? Because every time we think about a new problem that needs to be solved and the right questions to be asked, there is somebody who rises to the occasion and says, you know what, I'm going to ask the question differently, as you said, reframe it. But ultimately, there are other companies come in and try competing. So I'm wondering, is there such a thing as category of one, maybe at the beginning, but until you have other companies coming into it that doesn't really become a category. Is that a thing or is that just... just So in general, you want competition to come into the category because it helps the more people educating prospects, customers, consumers about the problem and the solution, the better. And frankly, they fall for the bait. Yeah. They fall for it. And so that's awesome. That's very helpful. Yeah. And all they do is... Werby might as well Venmo their entire budget to Eric Yuan at Zoom. So we want that. We want dumbasses to copy us, which they will, Mm -hmm. and validate A, the category, and B, that we are the category queen. So I think there's a big aha in your book. Mm -hmm. And the big aha for me goes like this. Legendary companies create movements because you can't move the world from the way it is to a new and different way by yourself. It takes a tribe. It takes a village. It takes an army. It takes a community. If MLK gets up and gives, I have a dream speech in front of three people, very little happens, right? And so it's his ability to impact tens of thousands and millions over time. And so legendary category designers are evangelists and they create movements, Here's another way to think about it. If you want to sell Bibles, there needs to be Christians. Yeah. And so if you're a Bible manufacturer, you actually have to be a Christian manufacturer first. Mm -hmm. And so in a lot of ways, I think what your work is emblematic of is how do we create a massive tribe of people who share our belief 
that the world should be a different and new and exciting way and who will then educate and evangelize this point of view to others. And because here's the aha, the greatest marketing was, is, and will always be word of mouth. And marketing's job is to make sure that the right words go in the right mouths. And so creating a movement is about identifying what my brother from another mother and partner in Category Pirates, Eddie Yoon, calls the super consumers. The super consumers are the 7 to 10% of customers in a given market category who drive that category. They tend to purchase the most. They tend to be the most vocal. They're highly visible online. They buy a shit ton of whatever the thing is. They gift people the thing. And so if you're Les Paul and you're pioneering the electric guitar category, the wise thing to do is to figure out who the super consumers are in the acoustic guitar category because they will probably be the most open to a new and different idea about the future of guitars. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. And there are people who have 20 guitars, 50 guitars. Those are super consumers of guitars. So if you want to move Mm -hmm. the world from the way it is today to a new way, figure out who the super consumers are, particularly the ones who are the most vocal, wrap your arms around them, enroll them in your vision, your point of view. And if they get excited, if they agree with you about your point of view, they will carry your message. Yeah. Today online, we call that community and you're a master of creating community. And so I think the big aha here, and I think what I hope people get from your work is legendary entrepreneurs and creators of any kind, legendary marketers create movements Mm. and they do it from the beginning because you are creating those disciples. So you want to find who those super consumers are, get them fired up about your new thing. And once they get the value and importance of your carbodingulator, they'll tell the world about it. And one day you'll wake up and you'll have a massive new category that you dominate. So what's your next move? Here's one. Go to themovebook.com to check out the assessment, the templates, the frameworks, and a whole list of resources to help you figure out your next move. The link is in the show notes. Check it out.